This land is your land This land is my land From California Good evening. This is Heartstock Radio. And our guest today is Greg Trinish. He is the founder and executive director at Adventure Scientists. Greg has actually been on the program once previously, but he's got a lot going on. So I know he will have quite a bit to share with us here in just a moment. Remember that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook where we post all of our events um, every week. We will be right back with Greg Trinish. This is Heartstock. You're listening to Heartstock Radio. Daniel Hogan is manning the board, and I'm Carol Murphy. Today, our guest is Greg Trinish of Adventure Scientists. Hi, Greg. Hey, how are you? Excellent. Please give our listeners a little intro here of what uh, Adventure Scientists do and sure thing. Uh, all that you've got going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're a nonprofit organization based in Bozeman, Montana, and we are a staff of 16 people uh, based at our headquarters here, uh, but thousands and thousands of adventurers who are all around the world collecting scientific data for our partners. And we really look for partners that are at the forefront of their fields, people who are trying to address environmental and human health issues. And where data can really amplify and accelerate their impact. And so we spend a lot of time developing the projects and working alongside our partners to find the right fit and figure out exactly where data are needed. And then we'll put together a profile of who the right adventurer is. That might be a day hiker, or that might be somebody who is capable of summiting Mount Everest and everything in between. And then once we've got that profile, uh, we've got our amazing team that builds out the project and and deploys people to collect data. And you're talking with us from Bozeman right now as well. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm just a little curious about whether or not you're from Bozeman, where you grew up, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, I've lived in Bozeman for 12 years now, so I consider it home, um, raising my family here. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, in the suburbs of Cleveland, and didn't spend a ton of time in the outdoors or, you know, really appreciating uh, nature until I was a bit older. I was always in love with science and and chasing bugs and fireflies around my yard, and I would go on tracking missions with the deer behind our house, but um, I didn't really develop the passion that I have for science and adventure until much later in my life. And, and what led to that? I'm just kind of curious here. Is city boy turned country boy, it sounds like. Yeah. You know, I, I struggled a lot as a teenager. I was actually kicked out of high school when I was 16. I just never did well in a traditional uh, school environment. And when I was 16, uh, my grandma sent me on a backpacking trip to British Columbia. And... 
It was awesome. Uh, my guide on that trip was a guy named Guy B. Slangen, uh, who I'm back in touch with uh, today. Guy B. lives in San Francisco. And uh, he had just finished hiking the Appalachian Trail. And, uh, you know, never thought that I'd be able to do that. But then years later did. But I just absolutely fell in love with backpacking on that trip. We spent a week in the Garibaldi Provincial Park and another week on Vancouver Island uh, circumnavigating it in, in kayaks, sea kayaks. I mean, I just remember experiences like making a, a sauna on the beach and um, climbing up to Chef's Hat Lake and helping other kids uh, with the weight in their packs. And it was just one of the very few times in my life, the uh, first times in my life that I felt at home. And it was one of the mm. first times in my life where I just, I, I thrived. Uh, and that never left me. Um, when I was 18, I went to school in Boulder, Colorado, and only furthered my passion for the outdoors there. So it sounds like maybe you were a Midwesterner that was really intended for the West. I've always felt like I was somehow attached to the West. Every time I've tried to live in another place, it just always called me back. Um, do you think that's true for you? Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, even before the backpacking trip, my family took a, uh, we took two trips that were really, really, I think foundational for me. Uh, one was I was probably 11 years old when we went to Colorado for three weeks, drove the family minivan out there and packed my grandma and my two brothers and my parents in the car and had an amazing time just, you know, driving around Colorado. And there's these old home movies with, you know, the big VHS adapters that uh, you can hear me saying in one of them that I want to live here someday on Loveland Pass. <laughs> and I wound up living in Breckenridge uh, at one point in my life. And then the next trip was a cross country trip that we took in an RV, I think the next year. Um, and both of those just had such an impact on me. The mountains, the West, we rode horses on those trips. And it just, I absolutely fell in love with the mountains. And I don't know that I always knew I'd end up out West, but uh, I visited Boulder when I was ready to look at schools and just walking around downtown Boulder in December in shorts and looking up at the flat irons and realizing that Vail and Breckenridge and Keystone were just above those peaks. Yeah, there was no question that I would be out here and there's no question that I'll be out here for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And what did you study at Boulder? At Boulder, I studied sociology and years later got a degree in ecology from Montana State when I finally moved here. Mm -hmm. But I studied sociology when I was in Boulder. Hmm, sociology. And how does that tie into what you're doing as a nature scientist? Yeah, it, it ties in more to what I kind of did in between. It certainly ties in here as well. Uh, but sociology is you know, the study of societies, study of how people interact with each other and with the world. And I spent a lot of time after college doing uh, wilderness therapy and taking kids up into the mountains who were struggling like I had. And that really helped. Uh, that degree was definitely applicable there. I think this, the combination of people and nature and how people interact with nature, the sociology background really does help with that. I think that we always take a very practical approach at adventure scientists and realize that people are coming from all different backgrounds and all different 
needs and to say that we need to protect this or that place at the expense of others it really just doesn't work and so we look for ways where we can make human existence more sustainable we look for ways where we can find solutions that people will adapt because they're cheaper because they're more effective because they help meet their needs at the same time that they meet environmental needs uh, and I think that sociology background really was influential in the formation of the organization, but also in that approach. Yeah, we're all connected and we're learning that Absolutely. even more now in this day. So when give us a little history of adventure scientists. When did that all begin? And uh, was there something pivotal that kind of launched you into your nonprofit yeah, so I started the organization in, in 2011. I had the idea after I had done an expedition. Uh, I walked from the eastern side of Yellowstone National Park to the western side of the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness. Uh, it's about 600 miles that a friend and I covered in a month. And on that trip, we had really worked closely with the Greater Yellowstone Coalition and with the Craighead Institute to develop a protocol for putting ourselves in the brain of a grizzly bear or wolverine and testing their least cost path analyses or the models that would show where the where grizzly bears and wolverines would really move across these large landscapes. And I just absolutely loved that project. And, and we made a film about it uh, called Connecting the Gems, which is on Vimeo today. And the idea really started right after that trip where I was like, you know what, I can do this and I can have an impact by going out and doing this on different expeditions. But if I could find a way to get the tens and tens of thousands of people who go outside every day and who love the outdoors mobilized in the same direction, if I could figure out a way to train people so that the data they collect is actually useful uh, to everyone from government agencies to NGOs to businesses to university researchers, man, the impact we could have would be much, much greater. And so that was in November that I had the idea, 2010, January, I incorporated as a nonprofit and I Googled, how do you start a nonprofit? <laughs> I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, uh, but along the way, the advisors and board members and donors and just the crew that has rallied around this organization has taught me so much, but just given the organization so much of an opportunity to have impact and to succeed at our mission. Yes. And it seems that I recall your model changed a little bit as time went by. Can you maybe talk a lot about that? You know, so oftentimes we have to kind of pivot as we learn. You start out with a great idea and you get into it. It's like, well, this needs to be tweaked a little. Totally. Yeah. I mean, everything is an iteration and we're still learning today. Um, we're almost 10 years old now and uh, January will mark our 10 year anniversary, which is very hard to believe. Uh, but we're still learning every day and, and figuring things out and getting better with each project we do. Originally, the idea was, you know, there's adventure that I know who's going to climb K2. And then I would reach out to a scientist who studies high altitude and, and find a match. And I would put them together. Well, what we learned is that doing uh, over 100 of those projects, uh, it worked. It was great. We got a lot of scientists, really good usable data. But at the end of the day, the impact we were having was not really what I wanted. Um, you know, we weren't always working on environmental or human health issues. 
we weren't always finding data limitations in those issues and we weren't always finding tangible pathways where the data we collected actually mattered and moved the needle to help make those issues advance and to help find solutions to those issues. And so we really did take a hard look at that. And, and today, all the projects we do have very tangible pathways from data collection to impact. There's a clear and tangible need for the data or there's data limitation for an environmental and human health issue. And there's always been a clear need for the outdoor skill set or an outdoor community. So that's still one of our three criteria today. And you've already touched on this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about your mission and, you know, kind of the big picture view of yeah. um, adventure scientists and why what you're doing is so critical and crucial in this day and age? Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm happy to talk about specific projects in a moment, but the mission of the organization is to equip partners uh, with, to equip scientists with data collected from the outdoors that can uh, help unlock solutions to environmental and human health issues. And really, we think about our organization as part of some systems level change that needs to happen in the world. When I look at climate change and agricultural shortages for more than a billion people on the planet as our population swells to 12 billion people, when I look at issues like wildlife extinction, like COVID-19, which is uh, one of many potential pandemics that we have faced and will continue to face moving forward due to a number of different factors, including environmental degradation. And I look at these issues and I think about, you know, where do we find optimism? Where do we find hope? And that really lies in the scientists for me. The people who I want to bet on are the engineers and scientists at the forefront of their fields that have the brilliance to find solutions to these issues. And I feel really lucky to work alongside many of those people and to be able to offer a resource to them in the form of unlimited boots on the ground. And, and that's what it's about is really removing barriers for those scientists to be successful. And so the systems level change that I started to talk about is really we want to find a world and, and the vision of the organization and my vision is that we're going to live in a world where those scientists have everything they need to be successful, whether it is money, whether it is celebrity, whether it is data, whether it is anything else that they might need training to go off and, and succeed at changing the world. And we all know that conservation and progress doesn't happen by an individual. It takes teams of people. Part of it is that part of it is bringing the right people together. Uh, who can really drive drive the needle and really uh, move the needle towards uh, solutions to so many of these issues. Mm -hmm. And so that really translates to our projects. And, and, you know, today we're really proud of the, a lot of, a lot of the accomplishments we've already made. Uh, we partnered with a researcher who asked us to climb Mount Everest. We collected samples up at 22,000 feet up there, highest known plant life on earth. It led to the discovery of fungi along with that researcher's uh, research in other places, but it helped isolate some fungi that were allowing the moss that we found up at 22,000 feet to grow up there. Mm. And now that researcher has been able to put the fungi into more than 3 million acres around the globe, including on 300 small farms in India, and it is doubling crop yields in some cases, even more without the need for synthetic fertilizers. 
saving farmers money, helping prevent things like harmful algal blooms and nitrogen uh, fertilizers from running off into waterways while making these plants more adaptable to a changing climate. It's, it's really exciting. Bioengineering, uh, it sounds like. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing taking what nature has to offer and, and applying it for our needs. That's it's mm-hmm. exactly what it is. So we're going to take um, our quick ahead. little midway point break here. And we shall be right back with Greg Trinish of Adventure Scientists. This is Heartstock. Stock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and today our guest is Greg Trinish of Adventure Scientists. Hi again, Greg. Hi. So let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of some of the projects that you have going on. And I think there's one in particular that's taking place right here in Montana. Yeah, that's right. So we've got an awesome project that is focused on wildlife connectivity and wildlife crossings across roadways. And so the idea here is that we'll be deploying uh, hundreds and hundreds of bikers across the state in 10 day snapshots. And one of these snapshots actually started just yesterday on June 18th. And the idea is that we cover uh, almost all of Montana state highways in these 10 day windows. And we do that four times a year in order to provide our partners at MDOT and uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks with data that they can use to place mitigation structures, including all different types of them from overpasses and underpasses to signage to slower speed limits. And then also the nonprofit community will have these data uh, that they can take action on as well. So we're super excited about this and the data have started pouring in as of yesterday. And we need a lot more volunteers for this project. So anybody who's a road biker uh, who either in a team of people or as an individual can bike uh, 50 miles. So again, the, there can be a relay where you bike 10 and five other friends bike 10 each or four other friends, I guess. But uh, there are 50 mile stretches that we've broken up the whole state highway system into. And we're going to be serving, surveying these across three years. And what is it, what type of data are you collecting and what's the hypothesis that you're trying to prove or disprove with your data? Yeah. So the question we're asking is where are the hotspots? Where are the areas where wildlife vehicle collisions are happening the most? And you might think, well, can't you get those data from State Highway Patrol or from 
any existing data sets. And the reality is, is that when you get beyond vehicles that have been disabled or when you get beyond places where the police have been called, those data don't exist. And so it's not just the elk, the deer, the moose that cause so much damage. Uh, it's all the way down through rare wildlife that get killed on roadways, everything from mountain lions to bears to bobcats to even martens and fishers uh, in certain parts of the state. So we'll be documenting all of that. It, it's looking at both roadkill and living wildlife on the sides of highways. And so we have customized an app that our volunteers are using. Everyone goes through a pretty extensive training. You don't need to have any science background to participate in the project, but we'll give you that training that you need to be successfully contributing to this data set. And again, it all gets shared with the state government and the nonprofit community so that they can take action. And how about COVID? I've heard so much, especially initially, about we're going to be seeing more pandemics as humankind encroaches more and more upon wild spaces. And mm-hmm. the suspicion that COVID was introduced into the human race via an animal vector. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and maybe how it ties into some of what you're doing. Yeah, so... You know, the human encroachment into wildlife habitat is one issue, absolutely. I think we can look to uh, previous, what were thought to be a pandemics, obviously not on the scale of COVID, and certainly to this one as well. And, you know, it, it goes beyond that too. I think this is very tied to climate change, vector-borne diseases like Zika virus and other things are certainly related to climate change. I think that we... Well, I'm certainly not an epidemiologist and would never claim to be or or a pandemic specialist. Um, We are certainly seeing that our interaction with with nature and our some of the ways that we just have chosen to operate as a human society has led to some challenges and will continue to. Uh, Part of our team is focused on finding and vetting new projects, and we have really taken a hard focus on the human health side of what we do. Previously, we've worked with Harvard Medical School to help isolate genes responsible for antibiotic resistance. You know, that's an issue that's estimated to kill 50 million people a year. That's, you know, compared with cancer today that kills 3 million people a year. By the year 2050, if left unchecked, multidrug-resistant infections will kill a whole lot of people. So we're working with Harvard to help them uh, with that issue. But we've been looking hard at where the transmission of disease from wildlife to humans is data lacking and where we could provide support for the health community. And uh, I can't say that we have anything we're ready to share uh, with that yet, but I'm confident that Again, by removing barriers for the brilliant scientists, some of which are here in Bozeman. You know, Raina Plowright in her lab is working on, on wildlife, uh, human disease, and has been forever. And we're really excited to find opportunities where our model can really benefit them. Mm-hmm. How are you funded? You know, this sounds like could potentially be very expensive. Can yeah. you talk just a little bit about that? Sure. So the vast majority of our funding comes from an incredible donor community, mostly private individuals. We do have foundation support as well from groups like the Packard Foundation and Simons Foundation, National Geographic as well. 
we are, again, the, the private individuals who fund us are people who are passionate about nature, passionate about the outdoors, passionate about science, and see that there's a lot of really amazing confluences with our work. It's, it's from democratization of science and exposing people who typically wouldn't consider themselves to be part of projects like this, giving them opportunities to engage in the sciences and STEM is really a big driver, I think, for a lot of our donors. And then uh, really the impact that they see that we have. You know, I mentioned earlier in our talk about the Everest project and, and the Roadkill project. And there's another that we're currently operating where we're creating genetic reference libraries for timber. So we're taking what is upwards of $150 billion a year issue which I had no idea was that big of an issue, and that's illegal deforestation. And we're creating genetic reference libraries. So we send volunteers across the entire range of the species and collect very fine-scale genetic information that allows us to then in the future compare uh, wood that is coming into shipments, compare wood that is being sold as products to the origins of where it came from. Mm. And so by determining the location, we can thereby determine the legality in many cases. And so this is an incredible project that allows law enforcement to prosecute timber theft uh, with a tool that was just never at their disposal before. So impacts like that, we really look for those big issues. I mentioned antibiotic resistance and agriculture, human health and, and deforestation. These are issues that really people see need new approaches. There are issues that people see need optimism and, and we can provide that, which is why I think a lot of our donors come to us. We also do have a fee-for-service model. And so we have an array of services that we provide the scientific community from project design and building projects to quality assurance project planning uh, to recruiting as a standalone service where we can provide the scientific community with a cadre of volunteers that they can then train and manage all the way through to full project management where we do everything from the project design to the build to the recruiting and training of volunteers to then managing to make sure they're successful while they're out there. And so we are funded through a combination of the two philanthropic and fee-for-service and of course the philanthropic helps keep our costs low and makes it something realistic for our scientific partners. Mm -hmm. It sounds like an excellent combination of approaches and we've got maybe about two minutes left and I wanted to just kind of touch on what you we're hinting at a little bit earlier, and that is kind of this hmm, almost governmental, anti-scientific pushback. What does the future hold? seems like that's the, the effect of that has been actually the opposite, that scientists have gotten even more hmm, empowered and serious about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that in some circles, science has been um, vilified. And at the same time, it's really interesting that we look at what's happening now with COVID and you can look at who household names are now. Dr. Fauci, for example, yeah. like <laughs> when's the last time an epidemiologist was a household name? I think we live in a really exciting time for science. I mean, it, it's obviously horrible that COVID is what it is. And yet 
people are seeing that we need science to solve this problem for us. Mm -hmm. People are seeing no matter what side of the aisle you're on, no matter what background you're from, no matter where you live, I think we're all very hopeful for a vaccine really soon. And that doesn't just come uh, by magic that comes through science and really incredible work that so many different people are advancing right now. How might our listeners find you? Because unfortunately, Greg and our listeners, we are out of time. And I just want to get that in there before we have to say goodbye. Yeah, we're at adventurescientists.org. That's adventurescientists.org. The adventure is singular and the scientists is plural. Yeah, we're there and on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all of those places as well. And uh, we encourage you to come to the website and look at the projects we've got going. We, as I said, need more volunteers for the Montana-based wildlife connectivity project for that timber project as well. And we're also working on a nationwide wild and scenic rivers project with five different federal agencies and in over 40 states across the country. So I hope you'll check us out. That is awesome and uh, sounds like one heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. This has been Heartstock. Thank you so much, Greg. And we shall see you next week. As always. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our live programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.